Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, it's 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. Our economic indicator is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Unfortunately, we have an a dearth. deficit today yeah, in deficit. terms of numbers. Uh, we have some indicators if uh, Fed officials are, uh, you know, to be considered. We have uh, Loretta Mester. From Cleveland and Jim Bullard, and uh, we have Rob Kaplan all speaking today. Uh, he he yeah, from the Dallas oh, Fed, you're, you're and then we have the Fed minutes. You're hiding a punchline. You're going down to Washington to be hermetically sealed in a room to parse the words some, several, a few. Well, the hermetically sealed is not too bad. It's being on Funk and Wagnall's porch. Is, exactly. That's the hard part. Now, there's an old joke. For <clears throat> What's gonna, what are they going to say in the minutes today, oh, wise one? Well, they're going to probably not say a whole lot that we don't already know. But let's ask a wiser one. Let's do that. The chief economist of McVean Trading in town from uh, Memphis. Oh, this is one of the largest commodities brokers in the world, so it's a big deal. But Michael Drury is with us. He's also the chairman of the Global Interdependent Center, about which more in a little bit. But um, yeah, everybody talks about the Fed, but are we going to learn anything today? And, and how much on a day-to-day basis are you really paying attention? So I think the main thing you're going to learn from the minutes is just how contentious this last meeting was. We know there was one dissent. The real question is how close were they to two dissents? Uh, you note that both Bullard and Mester are speaking today. They're both voters, and both are increasingly leaning towards tightening. It was interesting. Rosengren spoke yesterday and indicated that he thought that the market didn't have enough priced in. That's one of the more dovish voices. Yeah, but uh, Janet Young came out and said low and slow, and everybody uh, you know, kind of went back to sleep. Do any of these people who are speaking today, with all due respect to Loretta, Jim, and uh, Robert, uh, do they matter? Well, I think they only matter in the sense that you're trying to uh, you're trying to uh, work with how many dissents you're likely to take. So, I mean, if if you got to where you were going to take more than two, I think it would make a difference. And that's why I think Rosengren's an interesting voice because yeah. he too is a voter and a dove. One of the great things about your experience in economics, and, and one of them folks is being out of Georgia Tech, which is its own twisted economics of, of years ago is you had the privilege of working with Alan Sinai. I have found that when Sinai talks, there's always one absolute distinction of the moment that's original. What is your Sinai-like distinction right now in our Fed dialogue? What's the thing that you're grasping onto? Well, you know, I'm focused less on the Fed. I think, to me, the most interesting thing out there is that the world is fixated on the fact that we're in the seventh or eighth year of an economic expansion, depending how you count. I count us as in the first year of a global expansion, that the recession started in 14 in China with the corruption campaign. The policy response was last year, negative interest rates and devaluations. And the growth is today, as seen in auto and housing, both in the United States and in China. And that view gives you a much longer cycle than seven years is going to end in eight. Why do you think that uh, we've started a, a, an upturn when there's so much gloom about the way things are going and you have many uh, central banks still cutting rates? 
Well, and how is that different than the United States in 2009, 10, you know, Europe in uh, 11, 12? I mean, we're not in V-shaped recoveries anymore. We're in L-shaped recoveries. So even though we're in a recovery, I expect the United States to grow two, Europe to grow one. And if Japan right. gets zero, I'd be happy. <clears throat> Within that framed optimism, will the further growth on a nominal basis be growth of the real economy or will it just be a little more inflationary impulse off the disinflation we've seen? Yeah, I think very low nominal growth is here to stay and you get grinding real growth. Grinding, uh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not quite, uh, you know, stagnation, but not much yeah. more than that. Mike, well, you got to put a casket out back of the room <laughs> like I do. We're never retired. What, what, what about inflation? It's one question you, we could see addressed in the minutes today, whether the acceleration we have seen recently in inflation, whether the Fed thinks it's going to continue. Much of what's happened in terms of disinflation in this country related to commodities, your area, uh, are we going to see inflation now? Well, I think this may be very bimodal. I mean, we don't see any inflation on the forefront in the commodities area. In fact, you know, the the new technology was called out by the record high prices going into 2011. You know, that technology is still working its way through industries, and we think that you continue to see lower commodities prices for a very long time. The inflation is on the services side. You know, where you're seeing it in rents and you're seeing it in, in service costs. And does that continue, does it get to a point where the Fed is concerned anytime soon? Uh, I think concerned is a relative term. I mean, for a lot of the more hawkish people, as soon as we start bumping against two, they're going to be concerned. I think there are very few like Evans who are willing to put up with two and a half or three because yeah. they're even handed. Can I rip up the script here? And this is a, Mike goes to your good work in talking to many more presidents than I do. What is distinctive about Charles Evans? I was asked that question, and I went into Carnegie Mellon and Bennett McCollum and, and all that. But what is the distinctive feature of the Chicago president that makes everybody lean forward? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, his bullseye view that you can be even-handed and you can accept higher inflation as well as lower inflation, I think that's a distinctive view on the Fed right now. Not even the other dubs say things like that. Now, why he gets so much attention? Because he's an outlier. Well, he's uh, suggesting that maybe the Fed has to act more than the markets think. So uh, that is going to keep people. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm as, you know, guilty of the parlor game as anybody else. But the parlor game right now is really, really interesting. This afternoon, what time is it, Mike? 2 p.m.? 2 p.m. Minutes, 2 p.m. Michael McKee will be in Washington to give you perspective. You can't get anywhere else on some, several and if you, Michael, the 10-year yield, 1.75%. That's uh, something that uh, we've seen turn around the last couple of days. We're starting to see a little bit higher rates, and maybe the market's are beginning to pay a little bit of attention to Charlie Evans and, and people of his ilk. We're looking at futures a little bit higher here on Bloomberg. Now let's talk to Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders dealt setbacks to the front runners after their wins yesterday in the Wisconsin primary. A former spokesman for the Republican National Committee says Cruz's win in Wisconsin means the race will almost certainly go to the July convention with no nominee apparent. The race will head later this month to the delegate-rich primaries in New York, home to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. For the Democrats, 247 delegates are at stake in New York. For the Republicans, 95 are up for grabs. Meanwhile, Trump will campaign tonight on Long Island. 
The U.S. Labor Department is unveiling new rules for brokers aimed at giving more protection for Americans and their retirement accounts. The rules will require that brokers who recommend investments for retirement savers meet a stricter standard. Labor Secretary Tom Perez says brokers must act as fiduciaries, trustees legally obligated to put their clients' best interest above all. Today's rule ensures that putting clients first is no longer a marketing slogan. It's the law. Perez called it a good day for the middle class. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Lubar. Mike, Tom? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. And John Stashauer, nothing says baseball like frigid temperatures yeah. and the wind blowing in from center field. Brutal. Yeah, they got it. They got to play tonight, not even a day game uh, at the stadium. But yesterday was the fifth straight time the Yankees lost their opener. Astros won 5-3. The big play, an eighth-inning throwing error by losing pitcher Dylan Betances that Joe Girardi felt should have been interference on the runner who was clearly on the grass, not on the base path. The rule reads, in the umpire's judgment, if it impedes with the first baseman catching it. My argument is you have no lane to throw it. So I guess Dylan's only option is to throw it and hit him. And I don't think that's what baseball wants. So to me, it's something that probably needs to be looked at. I mean, that's that's a big play. You know, it ends up hurting us, and then he gives up the, the couple more runs from that on. But that's a big play because that's the second out. Mets off till Friday's home opener. They won 2 nothing at Kansas City. Neil Walker's two-run homer. All they need, Noah Syndergaard, and three relievers teaming on a three-hitter, 12 strikeouts. Comeback wins for the Rangers and Islanders, both heading to the postseason. They'll play tomorrow at the Garden. Last night, Rangers trailed Tampa Bay 2 nothing. Derek Stepan scored twice, and then Chris Kreider, 3-2 win, keeps them two points ahead of the Islanders, who clinched their berth with a thrilling 4-3 overtime win at Washington, who was up 3-1, so the best NHL team blew a lead and lost at home, and so did the best NBA team, Minnesota, stunned Golden State in overtime, denying the Warriors their 70th win. No upset in the NCAA Women's Final. UConn 82, Syracuse 51. Gina Oriema's 11th title, one more than John Wooden. Brianna Stewart, the first player to win four championships. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashel. John, thanks so much. It's time now for the Bloomberg Surveillance Baseball Report. The first place, Boston Red Sox. Yes, and you are under the uh, obligation, John and I put an obligation on you, you cannot say the season is over until they lose. Yeah, there's that movie, Seven Days in May. There'll be seven <laughs> days in May for the Red Sox. That is, congratulations. David Price starting it out right uh, for the Red Sox. And Big Poppy uh, beginning his farewell tour by yep. going yard. He so. did better than his spring training tour, to say the least. We will continue. Michael McCann, Tom Keenan Oil, Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Anchin Block and Anchin, named the best accounting firm in North America for the sixth year in a row by Hedgeweek.com. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Cameron Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are now little changed to higher. Oil is rising this morning. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. And this update brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash and rented real estate. Find them at NRIA.net. 
S&P E-mini futures again, little changed, up a point. Dow E-mini futures up four. NASDAQ E-mini futures up two. DAX in Germany is down two-tenths percent. The CAC in Paris up three-tenths percent. The FT100 up six-tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury down six-thirty-seconds. The yield 1.74 percent. NYMEX crude oil up 2% or 73 cents to 36.62 a barrel. COMEX gold is down 9 tenths percent or $10.40 to 12.19.20 an ounce. The euro $1.1346, the yen 110.39. Pfizer and Allergan agreeing to terminate their $160 billion merger. Pfizer up 1.2% this morning, Allergan down 2%. And Monsanto, the world's largest seed company, posting its smallest fiscal second quarter profit since 2011. As a global slump in agricultural commodities depress demand for crop inputs. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thank you so much. It is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. Can good policy cure Trumpism? In other words... When workers lose jobs because of free trade, is there a better solution than xenophobia and rage? The answer coming from the left and the right is yes, and it's called wage insurance. That's a catch-all term for when the government supplements the earnings of employees who face long-term wage reductions through no fault of their own. One reason it's winning praise is that, Unlike unemployment insurance and other programs that help the jobless, it encourages them to take lower-paying positions. President Obama sees it as a way to address inequality. His latest budget would compensate workers with at least three years' experience and who lose jobs for no fault of their own by taking a lower-paying job. He would give them half the shortfall, up to $10,000, over two years. The cost? Less than $5 billion a year. Even some Republicans, including Senator Marco Rubio, like the concept. Free trade and open markets lead to economic growth, just not for everyone. The government's role should be to help those who are hurt in the process. I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg opinion and commentary, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays. I'm Bloomberg Radio. Michael? Well, Michael Jury is the chief economist at McVeigh Investments in Memphis. He's also the chairman of the Global Interdependent Center. I want to go back to something uh, you mentioned just briefly when we were talking about inflation before the break, about technical innovation in the commodities area, uh, particularly for oil. I mean, uh, one reason oil prices are so low is American frackers have found a way to uh, keep um, improving their output at lower and lower costs. So um, does that suggest that we see oil, low oil prices on forever? Uh, well, I mean, so, in a relative term. So the really interesting there, thing there is that, you know, I, until recently you basically only fracked in the Bakken. And it was so profitable that it didn't really spread beyond that because you just went further and further away from the center in the Bakken. It was only in the last year and a half or so that you moved to the Permian and the Eagleford. So, you know, we don't frack in Argentina, we don't frack in China, we don't frack in in Russia or, you know, anywhere in the Middle East. We're going to. So I think as that technology spreads worldwide, you're going to have a very difficult time coming above a ceiling that currently is 45 and will continue to to decline as the technology spreads. Well, when the price is that low, can anybody make money doing it? In other words, I mean, what's the clearing price going to be? 
Well, so the clearing price, we used to say it was 72, and then you said it was 56, and now people are saying mm-hmm. that it's in the 30s, and they're saying the lifting costs, even for, for uh, fracking, might only be in the high teens. So it, just, yeah. it keeps working its way down. Uh, is that because of technological progress? Bloomberg Intelligence did killer work. Vince Piazza, uh, like, removed the industry a year ago where he said, look, the all-in blended lifting cost is $29 a barrel. Everybody thought he was nuts. Yeah. I believe we visited $29 <laughs> a barrel. Are we going to visit, you know, the number Larry Kudlow was talking about a million years ago? Well, see, and I, I think we keep working our way down because, I mean, yeah. the, the cost of the oil field workers is going down. The cost of the trucking is going down. The, the ability to produce more from a single pad is Can increasing. Can we get more out of the ground now? Like, factor that for us. Uh, well, you get more out from a single pad, which is the, the great advantage. You used to only drill one well, now you drill eight, and you can drill them for four miles instead of two. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah, just... that's beautiful. But uh, if we start drilling... you got to realize Mike and I don't drive. We, we haven't been near oil at all. <laughs> Mike, when did you last do an oil change? Uh, uh, oil of Olay? <laughs> yeah. The Nash, the Nash Rambler needs it a little more often, but I send it over to New Jersey. Uh, if we start drilling, if, if other countries start fracking, I mean, do we think they actually will? I, it's, it's hard to believe Europe, with its strict environmental views, would get into it. But if the Chinese did, uh, what does that mean for what now is our our sort of dominant position in setting prices. So early on, the argument was that the seismology was different and it would be hard to frack in other places. But, I mean, we've just seen from the productivity boom in the United States that you just learn as you go. And so I think it will spread. Argentina is one of the more interesting markets for fracking, and they need the money, and it's kind of a fresh start down there. So what does it mean for – what is this – Supply, additional supply and low prices mean for the U.S. and for the global economy? Well, I mean, if you're in the world that I'm looking at where it's 2% U.S., 1% Europe, then, you know, I mean, you don't need a whole lot more oil every year. China's growing, but it's not growing like it did in the past. And so any incremental increases in in output are going to keep a lot of pressure on prices. Uh, Part of the only reason prices aren't a lot lower now is because, the expected increase from Iran really hasn't come online nearly as quickly as uh, early, you know, the initial anticipation was. What do you see in the economy? We have a great advantage in speaking to people that aren't within three zip codes of Manhattan, and you're one of them. You're out there. What, what, what do we get wrong in our big city synthesis that you observe? Well, I guess to me the biggest thing I get when I come to New York is the the focus on the stock market, and that means on oil, and that means on manufacturing, because that's where the big firms are as opposed to, you know, what's going on in smaller businesses and services and what's happening in the non-stock world, which is like in China and places Mm -hmm. like that. I think that emphasis puts too much pressure on the part of the world that's declining and misses the parts of the world that are starting to pick up. You do travel a lot as uh, chairman of the GIC. Uh, What are you learning from the central bankers you talk to around the world? Uh, They're equally confused everywhere in the world. I mean, uh, negative interest rates are a real problem. No one really knows how to deal with them. There are things as simple as accounting problems. I mean, the software doesn't allow you to deal with negative interest rates in a lot of Places, But I think most recently the fact that the Japanese went to negative interest rates and the yen strengthened and, and the uh, Draghi pulled out his candidate again. What does that signal for you, 110.34, stunning. What, what does it signal for you, that yen strengthening? 
I, you know, I think the dollar is uh, dollar strength, which led to bleeding out of U.S. strength to the rest of the world. I think that's ending. I think the dollar will be basically flat this year. And by the end of this year, the U.S. will be a little better. But I think the dollar, you know, tells you that the U.S. is still the lead engine. It's not a great engine, but it's the lead engine in the world economy. Well, should we be scared that central bankers don't really have a clue at this point either? I don't think we – well, I think they should be scared because they're central bankers. But I think it's just more and more people realizing that we need monetary – I mean fiscal policy. We need regulatory policy. We need structural change rather than just another round of debt creation. I can think of 535 people who don't <laughs> think we need uh, additional fiscal policy right now. If we don't get it, what happens? Well, so we may not get it in the United States, but the main place that we're getting fiscal policy right now is China, where they're on another round of infrastructure building, another round of directed investment. Uh, that may not be the long-run solution, but it probably buys you at least another 24 months of growth. Uh, who's you? Uh, buys the world or buys the Chinese? Well, buys the Chinese, and I think as long as Europe and the U.S. are growing, even if not spectacularly, then China can be an additional engine of growth or maybe a caboose that's pushing from the back, a rear-end lo locomotive. Where are you off to next? You're, you're always on the road. I, I will be in uh, Beijing on Monday and Hong Kong on Friday. And, uh, and then you're that sounds romantic as all get out. <laughs> but when, which hotel are you going to stay at in Beijing? I stay at the Hilton Wang Fuxing. Okay, the Hilton Wang Fuxing, which I sort of know kind of like the trip to the airport alone destroys any romance <laughs> on that trip. <laughs> I would assume. It's, I'll, I'll, I'll check the air meters, but it's the walk outside that's always exciting in Beijing. <laughs> yeah. Michael Drury from McVeigh Investments, thanks for stopping by on your way uh, around the world and catching us up to date. Let me do a data check here to get us up to date. Uh, uh, crude up 75 cents, 36.64. Uh, Brent crude 38.49. You heard Michael talk there uh, about finding the bottom uh, in oil. Gold down $9, 12.20 the ounce. Not near the 1100 handle, but nevertheless, 12.20 is. Uh, a churn, as we've seen in so many other data as well. Yen, 11037, I'm watching very carefully. We've got a much stronger yen trend in the last number of days. A euro, 11368, giving us a euro yen. Stronger yen, 125.45. Coming up on New York politics, among other things, Arthur Levitt. This will be interesting. <laughs> 